So the most important question that I can think of off the top of my head in terms of the Blue Jays playing in Buffalo is, are they still playing okay Blue Jays during the seventh inning stretch? They are. Good. I can confirm that. Good. That, that is that they, they, they are playing that during the seventh inning, and they, they still have all the Jumbotron stuff. So it's, it's like being in Rogers Center, except you're actually aware that there's nature. <laughs> there's, there's something beyond just the CN Tower and the roof? <laughs> exactly. You don't feel like you're being swallowed by concrete. <laughs> and well, and I say that as lovingly as I can about the Rogers Center, but holy crap! Like <laughs> like if if Texas didn't want its baseball stadium, can, we would have just been like, hey, do you want to bring that up here? <laughs> like, we can totally use like an open stadium. That's that's an interesting like injection into the the whole uh, trade across borders debate that kind of happens in <laughs> our countries. There, can can we exchange the Rogers Center for say? Um, Globe Life or Minute Maid Park. Yeah, that's I, I, I know. I know it's possible because I went to a high school in Nova Scotia that was built for a school district in California, and then my school board bought it on the cheap and put <laughs> it in a floodplain, so it's slowly sinking huh. every year. Wow, awesome. That's, uh, so at, at some point, they're going to just have to replace it or just kind of keep digging at that point? At, at some point, the whole town's going to be underwater, so... That's also true, yes. <laughs> We're going dark early in the podcast. Love it. That's nice. I, hey, you brought on the Canadian. Yeah. You're, you didn't bring, up, bring her on for, you know, glowing, happy-go-lucky, <laughs> shiny things. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't sure about, you know, Nova Scotia, whether or not that was one of the, uh, the happier or the more, I, I guess, the moodier provinces. Like Quebec, I would oh. expect moody in just kind of a very French kind of, uh, uh, as Robin Williams used to say, smoking baby vibe, but, uh, but yeah. See, see, Nova Scotia, we're, we're the same kind of sarcastic cynic, but we'll do it with a <laughs> smile and a wink, as opposed <laughs> to the Quebecois who will do it with a sneer. That's, that, that's good. So you've, you've got kind of the, the Quebecois sneer mixed with that almost a, a Midwestern kind of niceness. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty I like much. That, like, I like that combination, and I like what I've learned, actually, about Canadian culture in the past minute. That's cool. Uh, I'm here to educate. Yes, and I'm here to listen, as all Americans should be. Uh, <laughs> and uh, are, are you a fan of Rogers Center in general, or do you, do you feel any affection toward it? <laughs> um, I, I mean, it will always have a place in my heart. It was the first place I attended a Major League Baseball game, and when you grow up in Nova Scotia and the nearest major league ballpark is like a 10 hour drive. And that's, a, that's Fenway. That's not Rogers center. Rogers center is a 24 hour drive. Oh, wow. Um, so you, you gain a bit of appreciation when you go see baseball, having to, having to travel as far as you do. But if I take the sentimentality out of it, it's, it could use some changes. Like, yeah. Like, like I, like I said, it's a lot of cement mm-hmm. and, and not, not a lot else in there. So it's, it's not a very inviting ballpark, but the people in there make it very inviting. And yeah, unless you're the Texas Rangers sometimes, in which case not so much. Does any fan base like the Rangers? Is any <laughs> fan base like, okay with the Rangers? I mean, like. Like, you finally replaced Jeff Bannister, who whined about every single call, and you bring in Chris Woodward, who whines about a grand slam. Yeah. Like, 
like seriously is is a requirement of the managerial job of the rangers that you must have the skin of a grape <laughs> well i think given the fact that they were once owned by george w bush that's kind of a natural <laughs> thing right oh god it's, i mean the texas rangers fuck the rest of the world essentially i mean it make it <laughs> good with the brand it, it goes along with it uh it- the thing about the Rogers Center, and, and uh, you kind of hit on this, it, it reminds me of like one of those like 70s to mid 80s ballparks, the, the, the mm. Cincinnati's or the Three Rivers in Pittsburgh, where, and I remember walking into Three Rivers in Pittsburgh with one of my college friends, and he just out of nowhere just starts chanting, concrete, da 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 da, concrete. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's kind of interesting they ended up in Salem Field this season because Salem Field was one of the first of the uh, classic revival ballparks. Um, the, the architecture firm that ended up doing Camden Yards and, uh, and the original Texas Park, I believe, yeah. they did Salem Field first. So the Blue Jays are finally <laughs> slightly moving into that modern era of ballpark with this stint in Buffalo. Yeah. But... I uh, I don't know if it's if it's going to take off north of the border just yet. They need to they they need to realize it's not as classic as Wrigley or Fenway, and they can start doing some things with it. Yeah, uh, although the interesting thing about it is because so many other ballparks now are built in that post Camden Yards kind of vibe, that Rogers Center just by being a relic of the '80s now stands out from just about every other one. Uh, maybe not in the best way, but it's definitely like almost unique now in terms of uh, like maybe that and maybe the Coliseum are the only two that are kind of left of that concrete circle vibe, which I mean, might not be the worst thing in the world, but it it, it is different if nothing else. Yeah, like I'm I'm trying to think what else really matches the the vibe that the building gives off like i said this is taking the fans out of out of the equation because the fan base in toronto is wonderful it's got a lot of beautiful people as a part of it but like i'm trying i'm trying to like compare the stadiums in my mind and like the only one is like tampa but (laughs) the sky dome is better than tampa in that you don't actually lose balls in the lights (laughs) Yeah, and it is open for at least half of the baseball season, and that automatically yeah. makes it better than Tampa. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so let's start off the show and kind of jump into the Blue Jays baseball happening outside the Sky Dome for a second. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, the Outsports Baseball Podcast, episode number 42, the Jackie Robinson episode of Three Strikes You're Out, coming one week after Jackie Robinson Day. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports Baseball Prospectus and stand-up comedian on pause for the moment. The other voice you're hearing is a writer for the Jays from the Couch blog and host of the Locked on Blue Jays baseball podcast, AJ Andrews, joining us today. AJ, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It is a pleasure to talk baseball just north of the border and really just to kind of give in to my general overall sense of Canada envy at this point, because that's now a thing. Uh, so the first point of discussion is, yes, jealous. Uh, second, what can we do to get you to sneak me to Nova Scotia? Because, like, I want to live in a world where you can just walk up and play softball, as we were discussing earlier. Well, I um, I have been discussing this with a lot of American staff for the border, <laughs> and there is a ferry being chartered out of Maine 
that we have plans like it's it's not a strong ship but all it has to do is get to grand manan mm. in the bay of fundy because like once you're there that's new brunswick you can just you know cross cross over on their ferry <laughs> so we we are taking bids on tickets um my my friend leah needs to secure the boat but there there are plans now i cannot promise anything once you get north of the border, because there is a long list of people who are looking for citizen citizenship, and I can only marry so many. So, Canadian law isn't that liberal. Yeah, no, so, I I don't understand it, but uh, yeah, not not a fan of bigamy. So. <laughs> As Groucho Marx would say, that's bigamy too. Uh, <laughs> but I, I picture like getting on that ferry and getting to that that point in the river where you see the, the Canadian border ahead of you and it's got to be like almost the last shot of the Truman Show where Jim Carrey finally walks out of the studio he's been encased in his entire life and walks into the real world and I, I gotta <laughs> that that feeling has got to be just oh god make, walk, help me walk toward that light AJ please um I can say it's um it's probably somewhere in between that and that episode of The Handmaid's Tale where um <laughs> Uh, Alexis Bledel ends up north of the border, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, the um, the ferry crossing it it's not a river; it is ocean. We're asking oh, to do because like I'm sorry. yeah, no, um, Bay of Fundy is is an arm of the ocean, but we feel it's a bit safer. There there aren't any actual checkpoints on Grand Manan, so this this is the way we figured it out. Nice, like like and you know if if we actually get a hold of the decommissioned ferry from Yarmouth to Bar Harbor, that'll make things a lot easier. Excellent. And then we've also now just established that I have an American sense of geography. So yeah, there we go. <laughs> it's not in the form. I'm here to educate, no. Ken. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. So I, after the podcast, I will brush up on uh, my great big C and Moxie Fruvis lyrics and uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll get this going. Excellent. Uh, so on the subject of borders, uh, what is it like rooting for the Toronto Blue Jays in a year where they cannot legally enter your home country at this point? Uh, is, it, is it kind of the same? Can you get emotionally, similarly emotionally involved watching the Buffalo Blue Jays right now? Well, again, you're, you're talking to a woman who's had to follow the Blue Jays from afar for most of her life. Like, like I said, Nova Scotia is a 24-hour drive to Toronto. Um, so I've always essentially been watching from afar. Hmm. Um, so it's not that big of a difference for me, but it is interesting seeing them in a completely different locale that I'm used to. I mean, like I said, I grew up with them in the sky dome, you know, concrete skies and turf all over the place. <laughs> so like, it's, it's weird seeing like Lourdes Gurriel Jr., come up throwing and actually make a divot in the field <laughs> with like actual dirt. It's like, uh-huh. oh, they, they have actual stuff on the field now. They, they have, it's actual grass. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even recognize it. But first time they played on natural grass, right? <laughs> I, I believe so. I don't think exhibition stadium had grass. Right. So, it's also a football stadium too, right? Yeah. So, um, it, it's a little weird enough. It's a little weird seeing like, you know, the, 
the majestic Buffalo highway system in the <laughs> background and instead of the flight deck. <laughs> um, but uh, it's been a lot more enjoyable than the past couple seasons because, you know, they're, they're actually winning games, mm-hmm. which yeah. they should win, which is nice. Yeah. Turns out the exchange rate is about a 550 winning percentage, and that's doable. Mm. Yeah. Our, uh, our Canadian team is going further in america than it used to yeah um so let's get into that because the blue jays if the season were to end today i think i I looked at the standings this morning they would be like the last team in the al to make the playoffs if because they're the third Mm -hmm. place team with the second best record of third place teams i think at this point so they would be Um, number eight yeah well the the way the playoffs are going, the top two teams in each division make it, and then it's just any two other teams. So you don't have to come in third. Oh, okay. Um, So theoretically, Toronto and Baltimore could get the last two spots. Um, But yeah, as of right now, um, at the time of recording, I believe they they do have the final spot, which means they would play against the Rays, which we are very familiar with them, and they're decrepit dome of a ballpark. (laughs) Look and down on Tropicana Field, AJ. Look down. <laughs> I it's the only one I can. I'm sorry. When <laughs> yes. when you oh, take advantage. When when balls get right said fretted out of play in the <laughs> catwalk, like you get to start taking some shots. Oh my god, they absolutely have to play I'm too sexy every time a ball gets stuck in the catwalk up there. That's brilliant. <laughs> Love it. Uh so did you expect, I mean, obviously going into a 60-game season, anything can happen record-wise with that because it's such a small sample. But did you expect a year where they would, at this point, be kind of going for it? Um, once they announced the playoff change, because, uh, like, let's face it, this, this is a Blue Jays team that uh, finished very poorly last season. It was a growing season. It was all the young players coming out and – the result on the field was exactly what you'd expect from a team of young players and a team that had to give seven starts to Edwin Jackson for some reason. Yeah. Um, Love EJ. Yeah. I remember the Edwin Jackson experience. Yep. (laughs) But uh, with Boston seemingly imploding the way they did, it was very conceivable that Toronto could finish third. Hmm. So that was kind of what we were looking for, just a return to about 500 baseball, a return to respectability, and then start making the push in 2021, 2022. With these expanded playoffs, though, that that got a lot of Blue Jays fans excited because we knew we could be top eight. Because like you look at the teams right now that are chasing the Blue Jays for that final spot, the best one right now by record is the Tigers. Mm. And... I think it's a well-known fact that the Tigers have been bad forever. <laughs> and, and the signings of like CJ Cron and Jonathan Scope weren't going to change that fact <laughs> in a lot of people's minds. So you look at the competition around the American League, there was no reason to believe that the Blue Jays couldn't be a top eight team and actually get into that playoff spot. I don't think we expected the level of success we've seen so far where they're only a game back of the Yankees, mm, which it. I mean, I, again, I love that because uh, it's the Yankees yep. and feelings about the Yankees are very well known <laughs> up here in Canada. Basically you only follow them if you're a bandwagon team fan. So um, it's, 
it's a little bit inspiring, actually, to think that this Blue Jays team could actually be slightly ahead of schedule and without arguably their best player on the field. This winning run that's put them into this position to overtake the Yankees, it's the majority of that stretch has come without Bo Bichette. And if you looked at what Bo Bichette was doing while trying to keep the team afloat in the beginning of the season, you would have thought an injury to him would have been a death knell. But this team has started fighting back and getting offensive production from other sources, which they desperately needed. They needed to find those other pieces that could actually contribute consistent offense. And now that they're finally starting to get that and, and they actually have some starting pitching that's worth a damn. <laughs> I mean, in the case of Hyunjin Ryu, it's worth $20 million, but he's earning <laughs> every cent of it right now. Mm-hmm. With those combined and, and a bullpen that's suddenly one of the best in baseball, like, it, it just gives you so much hope that, all right, we can, we can actually get into the playoffs and we might not be able to make a run. Like, Tampa Bay won six of the 10 meetings so far, although four of them were extra inning contests. So you can argue we were very competitive, Mm -hmm. but just even having a competitive three game playoff atmosphere series against the Rays would be so beneficial to this team to give them that taste of like that next level of baseball. And a lot of these guys got that when they won the championship in New Hampshire, but winning a double A championship compared to, you know, major league playoff action, it's like, you know, getting a Chicago deep dish pizza in Plano, Texas. <laughs> so getting that kind of experience this year it, uh, is only going to help kind of accelerate things a little bit. And if the Blue Jays are savvy with what they do in the offseason, we could, we could see them make a, a very real run as this window starts to open up for this team. Yeah, it's, it's getting into that very kind of exciting part of, of a rebuild where you start to see the first glimmers of, okay, yes, this is kind of working. And you can see where this could go in the future. But you're also, as you say, in the moment, you're, you're getting kind of a bonus year. And bonus years mm. are really, really joyful. And uh, I've got to give you credit because your analogy found its way directly into my cholesterol-filled heart. <laughs> I figured it would. Yeah, uh, it's, I mean... There, there is not, it is ambrosia in, in my world. Uh, very, very, very unhealthy ambrosia, but ambrosia nonetheless. Mm. And uh, to your point about uh, Beau Bichette, uh, and as it regards chasing the Yankees, uh, Yankee fans right now, and I think somewhat justifiably, can talk a lot about the, a lot of the guys that they're missing due to injury, which seems to happen to them just about every year at this point. But mm-hmm. as you say, when the guy who gets out to far and away the best start of your core group suddenly goes down. I mean, that's in most years kind of cutting the heart out of a team. And this year, it seems like in the wake of Bichette going down, kind of the other guys you were building on, uh, the Kevin Biggios and Vlad- Vladito Guerrero kind of have stepped their game up a little bit. And you're starting to see the tools that brought them to the major leagues with so much hype too. In the case of Biggio, you're starting to see that that incredible walk tool leading off games and in Guerrero, um, he got off to the real slow start. But right now, the numbers are at least starting to look like at least acceptable for someone of, of, his, of his ceiling. And it looks like the, the power is at least starting to, to be there again. So mm. they've kind of stepped up in, in the wake of, of Beau Bichette. Uh, and do you feel kind of at this point that all three of them are developing in the right direction in that way? Or do you still have concerns about any, anyone in particular? I think, I think they're going in the right path. Um, 
obviously the uh, the shift from Vlad- from Vladimir Guerrero Jr. from third to first caught a lot of people by surprise. We thought that might be a couple of years down the road, but when they said like Travis Shaw is going to be the third baseman this year, that's like okay, well, what are you trying to do with this? Yeah. Um. So Vladdy's trying to learn an entirely new position while trying to adjust to his full season at the major league level. And this is the first full season for Kevin Biggio and Boba Shett as well. But um, seeing how how they're they're kind of of building onto things, Vladdy just, um, he had like an 11-game hit streak end recently, Hmm. which means that those line drives he's hitting are starting to find holes, which is which is what he needs to do. He needs to, he, he's almost been a victim of this launch angle revolution and that he's just trying to belt home runs when what he needs to do is follow his dad's footsteps and just put bat on ball and where it ends up, fine, whatever. Just make sure it finds ground somewhere. Um, Guerrero jeans, young Padawan. <laughs> exactly. Uh, he, just, he just needs to not find ground directly in front of infielders like he's right. been doing a lot this season. Um, Biggio has, al- has also had a rather lengthy streak come to an end recently. He was, uh, he was the major league leader in consecutive games on base. He was up to 21, 22 games before it ended. Um, but just that ability that the Blue Jays haven't really had in, in a long time, a leadoff guy who can consistently get on base and and not even just as like a, a stolen base threat, just a guy who's on there. I'm trying to think back when was the last time we had a guy in who you could plug into that leadoff spot and just be like, he's gonna get on base at least once a game. And the name I come up with is Shannon Stewart, who oh I don't think a lot of people remember. Yeah. But he was I mean, a very very solid left fielder. Um I, I was gonna guess uh you had Ricky Henderson for half a year. <laughs> That's that's a little bit before my time, Ken. Yeah, yeah. Um, just a little bit. Um, but having a guy like that who you can consistently bank on to get on base, um, and then the growth that um, two of the outfielders have made because that was the big thing for the Blue Jays. Like they they made these moves uh, to get more pitching, but they didn't touch the outfield, and we're like, okay, they they're they're just going to let um, the guys they have kind of battle it out. And it was, it was Teoscar Hernandez, Derek Fisher, Anthony Alford, um, Billy McKinney. And, and that was essentially going to be it. They were going to see if one of these guys actually stepped up and took the reins. And Teoscar Hernandez is the one who has stepped up and took the reins. He has rendered this entire contest moot. <laughs> um, he's, he's one of the American league leaders in home runs right now. He has 12. Yeah. I, I said, I said before the season, if Derek Fisher hit 15 home runs this year, I would buy a Derek Fisher jersey, like custom made. I'm really glad I said that about Derek Fisher instead of <laughs> Teoscar Hernandez, because Teoscar would make me pay out in about a week <laughs> if I said that. Um, but just the changes Teoscar has made, again, another one of these guys who, who really tried to go for power, um, instead of just relying on what he could do naturally with a bat and you've seen the change in approach um his ability to cut down on strikeouts he's a much better two strike hitter now he can put a lot more contact on the ball and that's resulted in him being a 300 hitter 
at this point, which, I mean, if you looked at Teoscar Hernandez the past couple of seasons, you would have thought that was a glitch in a simulation if, if Teoscar was up at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the run Randall Gritchick was on for two weeks there, that really pushed that Toronto winning streak, um, started to justify in a lot of fans' eyes that contract he signed a couple of years ago. He was the first Blue Jay to get that big extension. And a lot of people were like, well, why Grichuk? What's he done to justify that? He's showing now what he did to justify that and that he can turn it on like this and, and have these runs where he's just completely dominant at the plate. And when you have guys like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette, who you're kind of banking on, you need one of these secondary guys to be able to step up and contribute from time to time. And if Grichuk can do that, if Teoscar can keep doing that, that's going to bode well for the Blue Jays moving forward as they try to build this contender up. Yeah, you've mentioned twice now about uh, both Guerrero and Hernandez kind of going away a little bit from just total uh, immersion within launch angle and getting back to what are more natural swings for them. Is that something the Blue Jays as a whole are trying to impart on a lot of their players, or is that uh, just an individual change that both of them have made that happens to be coincidentally based in the same philosophy? I think so. And I think the big reason is the new coach that they brought on the staff this year. Um, Last year they had Guillermo Martinez and, and Dave Hudgens primarily handling the the hitting duties and uh this year they officially hired Dante Bichette on as a coach Bo's dad and uh growing up um I was a Blue Jays fan and then I was also a Rockies fan because Larry Walker was on the Rockies when I started really getting into baseball good call so I was very aware of those Blake Street bomber lineups with with Walker and Galarraga and and Bichette and I loved watching Dante actually go at it because he he was such um he he was such a a complete hitter you, you couldn't really put anything past him too so to have a guy like that on staff and being able to work with guys specifically um you're seeing it pay off with some guys Teoscar Hernandez obviously the big one but then there are guys like Rowdy Telez who have who've upped their contact rate and cut down on strikeouts um obviously Bobichet had had the season he did be nice if if guys like Danny Chanson could take those lessons to heart, but I'm not going to argue with what the team as a whole has been able to do. And and cutting down on the strikeouts was a huge thing that they had to do coming into the season because I don't know how many freaking times I held my head in my hands last year when there were runners on first and second and one out, and I'm like, well, Grichik and Smoke are probably both going to strike out, and sure enough. They would do just that, and the Blue Jays would get nothing, and I'd be left sitting there just being like, "Where's, where's my drink?" <laughs> yeah, and uh, as a Cub fan, uh, I am immensely familiar with that feeling as well. It's, uh, God love the team that I have, and I do love so many players, but yeah, that there are a lot of moments where, like this year in particular, when the Cubs load the bases, they're hitting something like a. 32 WRC plus, like not even exaggerating. That's their actual WRC plus number. Uh, so, so yeah, it, I, I think given where we are in terms of how baseball as a whole is approaching offense, uh, I personally am fond of launch angle just because it's kind of based on a Ted Williams principle of a slight upward incline in your swing and 
anything Teddy Ballgame said is pretty much gospel in terms of hitting as far as I'm concerned. But I also believe that when something spreads throughout all of baseball to the point where every team approaches it in pretty much the same way, that always leaves an opening for some team to do something a little bit different that no team is going to know how to approach if they get it just right. And certainly in this kind of high power, high, high strikeout environment that we're in, if there's a team that can kind of master cutting down strikeouts and contact, I think there will be a year or two where you'll be like Kansas City Royals mid last decade, so far ahead of everybody else and pitchers won't know what to do with you. Uh, don't bring up the mid yeah, Kansas City Royals. It's, it's the first non-strikeout example I could pop, could pop into my mind. Amish kid still haunts my dreams. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah. but, but you get what I'm saying, right, in terms of what, what uh, just in, in general, that, that philosophy. I, I do. And, and like the Blue Jays were a poster child for that let's go for the home run sort of thing. But that was a lot easier to do when you had guys like Josh Donaldson and Jose Bautista and Edwin Encarnacion going through the lineup who would just hit dingers on a regular basis. When they tried to do that without those guys or with diminished versions of those guys, obviously the returns diminished as well. And you know, um, during during a lot of the early parts of the season when the Blue Jays were struggling, they were still kind of doing that. I mean, like, they they had a run of 14 straight solo home runs. Mm. Home runs without anyone on base because they had so many problems actually trying to get on base that the home runs were meaningless. And I, I said it a lot on the podcast. I mean, you can... You can hit home runs all you want, but you want to make them really hurt pitchers. You want to make those mistake pitches count for as much as you can, and you can't keep doing that with just solo shots. Um, the Blue Jays still hit a lot of home runs. They're tied for six in Major League Baseball with 55, but that number's actually come down. They, they were near the top of the top of the league, and you're starting to see the offense get a little more diversified. They're starting to, to you know get better at situational hitting hitting a deep fly ball to to get a runner home from third, putting a ground ball to the right side of the infield to advance a runner from second to third. Stuff that the Tampa Bay Rays have down, like, pat. The Blue Jays are finally starting to get and and utilize. And when they can do that and become that complete offense, as you said, they're going to cross up a lot of teams that are just trying to go three true outcomes, and it's and it's going to be a much better team to watch on the yeah. field. When, when you inject variety into your offensive attack, that in general is a, is a more fun baseball team to watch, unless you're having just one of those games where literally everybody is launching the ball over the fence. Uh, and I think it's only fair, I guess, to say that since I did drop a 2015 Royals on you, you do, do get one free mention of the 2003 Marlins. So <laughs> any uh, Juan Pierre or Jeff Conine reference, let me have it. Let's, we yeah. just traded his son to Miami, so. Huh. Oh yeah, I did. I did hear that on Monday. Yeah, that. that, that yeah, he's he's a return for Jonathan VR. Nice, so. nice. Yeah. But, um, so speaking of national nightmares, uh, Tom Brenneman. Let's let's transition into that for a second. Because um, <laughs> oh, we both wrote pieces uh, right after Tom Brenneman dropped the f bomb onto a live mic a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I was curious first of all, like what stood out to you most about hearing this new, uh, this new instance of hearing such an overt slur on a national broadcast? Like, was it the apology 
Was it the tone of voice that, that he said it in? Oh, God. Well, first of all, sadly, this is not new for a fan of the Blue Jays. We had a couple of very high-profile incidents with the same manner of slur in the, in the 2010s. Um, and the immediate one I, I drew the comparison with was Kevin Pillar in 2017. And just, just as an editor's note, I wish I did not defend Kevin Pillar as much as I did in that post. Yeah, um, well, you didn't really know just, he was about to say something awful. No, I didn't uh, think he'd go all lives matter literally two yeah. days later. Yeah. Freaking jeez. Yeah. It's, like, I mean, have, have some level of awareness, Kevin. Come on. Huh. And, and they traded him right away. And good on the Red Sox for doing that. <laughs> yeah, traded him to Colorado. <laughs> which, yay. Well, well, my NLT. Daniel, Daniel Murphy. So. Oh, my, oh, my God. Daniel freaking Murphy. Uh, um, but that, that's kind of actually what I wanted to lead into with this, is that um, you're uh, – and we'll, we'll get fully into your discussion of, of Kevin Pillar in a moment. But the one thing in reading your, your piece about it, when you mentioned Pillar and Yunel Escobar – uh, the, mm. the two instances of, of overt homophobia from their careers is that I was kind of reminded of when the Cubs traded for Daniel Murphy at the, the deadline in uh, 2018. Um, just the personal sense of kind of, I, I don't know if violation is too strong a word there, but mm. I, I know when it's your team involved in either spewing or accepting that kind of homophobia that for me, it really hit more emotionally because obviously, regardless of where he was, Daniel Murphy, what he said was horrendous and I was going to go off on him no matter what. But when the Cubs brought him on board, then it was like I had to do mental gymnastics about how do I root for this team, most of the rest of whom I adore, uh, and a team that I really want to see do well, mixed with them willingly acquiring someone who despises me for who I am. Uh, and that, that was something that really I struggled with for a long time, and, and it made rooting for them much harder. Did, did, do you find that to be kind of similar when Pilar was dropping F-bombs uh, on the field as well? Yeah, and, and like it's, it's similar to any domestic violence situation as well, which I know both our teams have experience with. Yeah. Um, cause when the Escobar thing happened, that was back in 2012. I didn't really know who I was at that point. I was just some drunk university student wandering around 20 by 2017. I knew who I was. So to hear Kevin Pillar just drop that, um, it did hurt. Cause like, these are people who I want to be able to talk to and try and develop a relationship with to enjoy, uh, a potential career that I, that I love. And they're, they're clearly, they, they don't have the respect for me that I do for them. And um, when I wrote the article, I, I did compare it a little differently because Pilar uttered his in frustration and anger. And I can rationalize that a lot more because I know people who are good people who have admitted they have done that in the past and and just shouted that in anger because it's what they did before. So in that context, I understood it more because, like, I mean, I've, I've been on Xbox. I've had 11-year-olds shout that at me. Mm-hmm. So 
that was also a, a bit easier for to forgive as opposed to Brenneman, who just dropped it so freaking casually and like in a phrase I had never heard before. Yeah. So like you had you had to be a familiar with the word in general, be comfortable enough to create random phrases to drop <laughs> it in, mm-hmm. and and see j- just the just again the casual tone that he used clearly an indicator that this is something you did on the regular and that that changed the tone for me and then when he started trying to apologize without actually addressing like the people who he slurred yeah it just i'm addressing a nick castellanos homer than the people he's exactly like you didn't even care enough about your apology to ignore what's going on around you which meant you clearly did not give any kind of a damn yeah and i I think it's there's something somewhat cosmically wonderful about the fact that he had to at least if, if he was stopping his apology to call a homer it was for a player that everybody knows is named big nick energy oh god um but yeah, and, and the thing that, that really struck me about the tone uh, that he dropped it to is that especially you hear it in the way that he says the word, that there's this mix of disdain and anger and, yeah. and some real hate in there too, that you can tell that, that this is something that, that you hear his attitude towards us as a community within the way he says that word. And it's 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 cutting a little bit to hear, honestly. Um, mm. And what what's interesting, kind of in the context of what you discussed about the work that Pollard did, because he did do work, correct? After after yeah, and part- and that was that was one of the big big things that I used to kind of allow myself to be okay with Kevin Pollard is seeing that you know he did try and educate himself he did speak with you know lgbtq families and and try to understand what the community goes through um that that does give a lot of leeway if if you're actually willing to put in the work i'm a lot more likely to forgive because i i'm not one of those people who like wants to put a black mark on someone forever like it is going to be a mark but i want to believe overall you can try to move past it and try and redeem yourself. Pilar started from a better spot than Brenneman. And up, up until that, that point last week, it looked like he had put in more effort than Brenneman. So I was willing to be a lot more lenient with Pilar than I was with Brenneman. But again, you, you kind of have to be able to immerse yourself completely in that art. And, and I think that's what ticked a lot of people off about Pilar's statement. Yeah. That it looked like it was it was all just a show, and when you do that, a lot of people get angry because they feel played. Like I felt played once he actually did that. It's like, oh, you didn't mean any of it because you haven't learned to respect other people, right? Because everybody that he is going to see to do the work is also putting work in to try to make him a better person, and also putting exactly. work in to give him benefits of the doubt that he can become that better person. And in dropping that all lives matter nonsense that he did or the equivalent of it in the middle of last week, he really just kind of showed his ass in terms of who he is. He showed us all who, who, who Kevin Mm. Pillar is. And I I think the thing that we've got to learn, I guess, from that 
is that it's uh, not just a matter of doing the work and then getting a get out of bigotry free card after that. You've got to just you've got to keep doing the work. I guess it, it's a matter. It's a process and it's an ongoing. Um, and that's really one thing that we've been kind of pushing for on the outsports front is that uh, Tom Brenneman. This is the opportunity that he has if he wants to take it is to put in that work, but also legitimately put in the work to, to change as a person and, and not just, as you say, to make it uh, so much window dressing uh, just to just as almost like a PR stunt and then show the world who you are another couple of years after that. So if he's serious, uh, the, the comp that we've been throwing out on the site is Tim Hardaway in terms of someone who many years ago just famously came out and said, I hate gay people. And at least according to uh, Sid Ziegler, then put in a substantial amount of work with the Trevor Project and with LGBTQ communities in his hometown and has, if, if not a visible ally, at least is, is someone who is a consistent ally to the community from what Sid has told us. So, I mean, that's, that's I guess, maybe the best case scenario and Kevin Pillar might be the worst in this instance. Yeah. And, and again, it's sad because like I said, you could, you, he had the benefit of the doubt up until that point yeah. because he, he did make that effort and, and it, it just became clear he tailed off and, and didn't want to keep putting in that effort and didn't learn that, you know, you have to have to be able to take in the viewpoints of the marginalized from your position of privilege. And if you don't put in that kind of effort, you, you just don't get to, to reap the benefits of, of being that, that kind of person who can be an example of how to recover from this, like Tim Hardaway, as you said, mm-hmm. and it, it's just really frustrating, especially in a sport that could use people like that. We yes. need more Sean Doolittles. Yes. We need more Colin McHughes. Mm-hmm. We, we need more people willing to go out there and learn. And, and Jack Flaherty, I, I want to mention Jack Flaherty as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you just need more people willing to go out there and learn. And, you know, that's why I was actually very appreciative to see, you know, baseball players come out. And it was just two that I saw, but the fact that Amir Garrett and Matt Bowman went out on social media and said, we do not approve of this. We are not standing for this. That's the kind of culture change that needs to happen. Um, I noted in, in my Brenneman piece that in 2012, when the Escobar thing happened, Casey Jansen uh, told, told the media that this culture was pervasive in baseball, that you would hear those slurs thrown out basically every day, whether in English or Spanish. And, you know, it's a, it's a slow culture change, but it's a culture change that needs to happen overall for more people to feel comfortable. So it's not just the realm of the Lance Berkmans and the Aubrey Huffs of the mm-hmm. world. So it can be a place where, again, you can have, you can have guys like Amir Garrett, Matt Bowman, Joey Votto, um, Freddie Galvis, all in the same place, but all feeling respected as opposed to just wondering, well, what are they, get, what are they saying behind my back? That sort of thing. Yeah, and, and you say, uh, as you say, it is only two players, but given that we know baseball culture is so insular 
and even just a couple of years ago would have been the, the kind of place where everyone would just rally around the sanctity of the clubhouse and, and nothing, uh, nothing leaves here that would be controversial or in any way call out someone in the organization. The fact that you do have two people who feel emboldened to go out there and say, yes, we, we, we value you and we're listening to you and we're sorry to the LGBTQ community, that is a definite positive step. And baseball is taking positive steps. And that's the kind of thing that, well, it's not, you know, we haven't arrived at any, you know, revolution in the game by any means. It's still something that should be at least celebrated a little bit. Yeah. And, and like I said, the more we have players who are comfortable doing that and, yes. and being able to take the stance like that, the better off the sport will be because you're, you'll be truly inclusive. And uh, again, I, I held off revealing who I was for so many years because I didn't feel like it was inclusive. I didn't feel like I could be myself and try to do this job. So to see players start to, you know, unprompted be be that kind of catalyst for the positive change i mean it does give me hope that you know the the next generation that's coming up will be able to take this fight further and and be able to progress things further and it does give me a bit of hope and and like amir garrett's one of my favorite players i i would want amir garrett on my side in anything i I still have that photo of him taking on the entire pirate. Oh God. Team. Yes. Going after Clint Hurdle. One of yes. my favorite photos ever. And any player who is willing to take on a Clint Hurdle team by himself deserves a goddamn Nobel prize. That's. Oh my yeah. God. Uh, AJ, is there anything that you'd like to plug while I still have you here? Sure. Um, you can subscribe to the locked on blue Jays podcast. It's part of the locked on podcast network. You can find it on basically anywhere you get podcasts because we got that kind of coverage. <laughs> um, and you can follow the podcast itself on Twitter at locked on Jays. You can follow me on Twitter at a underscore J underscore Andrews. The underscores are in there because Twitter is dumb. <laughs> As Ken Schultz underscore. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and, and just, just to point out, I am not the Louisiana softball pitcher. <laughs> um, I, I do not have that good of an arm. So that is a different AJ Andrews. She is also very good. So feel free to follow her as well. But <laughs> just, just so you know. Mm -hmm. And I am not a fishing encyclopedia author, nor am I a juggler known as the Flying Fool. But uh, put on either <laughs> of them, honestly. Uh, and yeah, subscribe to the Lockdown Blue Jays podcast because as we've been discussing for the past uh, hour or so, the Blue Jays are going to get good and they're going to stay good for the next several years. So it's a team we're going to want to learn as much as we can about. AJ Andrews, let's play ball. <laughs>